Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the debut grand opening of Mad Villain Bistro Bed and Breakfast Bar Grill Cafe Lounge on the Water. Where we offer you the finest to the finest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Terry Talks Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Clayton Terry. And I'm Ryan Terry. And this year, like we like to do at the end of every year, we're going to be recounting some of our favorite movies for the whole entire year for all of 2020 but as we all know this year was a little different um not a lot of movies came out and even besides that i feel like there were large swaths of this year where um i don't want to speak for you ryan but at least for me i was like i am not in the mood to consume new content oh no absolutely like i think especially movies i sort of fell off of more than anything else which is a shame and i started catching up a bit at the end of the year but it was a lot easier to like throw on an album that maybe captured the anger that i was feeling in a given moment as to kind of allude to um, maybe something that'll be in some of our lists or like a movie that i know i love like scott pilgrim or go back through movies that'll be heartwarming but didn't come out in 2020 like we did the before trilogy mm-hmm, which was which were incredible yeah, like which, some of the best things we watched this year i think for both of us definitely probably one of those first two films or seven samurai would be like my favorite thing i consumed this whole year but yeah so like i've said we're gonna be talking about movies but also albums and video games and comedy specials and books potentially um so a whole list of stuff and another thing we're doing a little differently this year is that usually I know the exact order of Ryan's list and vice versa. And through that, we're able to kind of plan out what order we want to talk about things in. But we didn't do that this year. So hopefully it's going to be a surprise for each of us to hear what the other person's list contains. I mean, to a certain extent, I know Mm -hmm. vaguely what you liked this year. But yeah, it's going to just be a lot more conversational and a lot more relaxed because 2020 demands that, (laughs) I feel like. But, Ryan, why don't we start with you and your uh, 10th favorite thing, 10th favorite piece of art from uh, 2020? Sure. So, I my 10th favorite thing this year, I will say, like, half of mine are albums. We really upped, like, trying to get you to hear this more regular by the end of the year, since uh, everyone who does it is closer together and we can more easily communicate with one another. And I had a job at the radio station. Uh, to listen to albums record labels would send the, them to us and then we'd listen to them and put them on the radio so i've consumed a lot more albums than anything else this year but uh, i think my 10th favorite album is or 10th favorite thing is um the strokes newest album the new abnormal which was released in april and the producer was rick rubin and this is uh, a stroke. The Strokes is a band that I've been a huge fan of for a long time, um, particularly their first two albums, and then I think they sort of level out after that. But this is the first taste of in a while of them like really doing something new and interesting. And it's very exciting, and it's only like forty five minutes, nine tracks. It's a great, uh, weird new wave infused rock punk album Mm -hmm. and i'd highly recommend it uh how does this compare for uh the other strokes albums that have come out in the past it's a lot more i think a lot of bands 
there's a tendency for a lot of bands to release their first album and like that is their best album and maybe their albums afterwards are okay or pretty good but like they will always live in the shadow of their debut album and i fear the strokes were one of those bands for a while and i don't think this is better than their debut because their debut is i think one of the most important albums in rock history but i it marks a really important and great change in the band instead of relying on the like post-punk uh aesthetics that have pushed their career thus far they really dive into like drum machines and weird synths and my favorite song on the whole uh album is called at the door and it like features little to no percussion and it's more of like a it's more of a synth track it feels like a soundtrack song and like i think they've really stepped up uh, especially on a song like that, maturity-wise, in lyricism. Like, one of my favorite lyrics in the album is, uh, use me like an oar and get me back to shore, or get yourself <laughs> to shore. Mm-hmm. And it, it's this, um, it, they're weird. They're weird songs, but they, they're not, like, so out there as to be confusing. They're just sort of, like, jagged and abstract mm-hmm. in a way that's very fun and very danceable. The first song, like the entire uh, track is propelled by this unchanging drum machine that sounds like it was made on an 80s Casio keyboard. And it's so it's so like it's so not what I would expect from a band like this. But all of the elements that still make this band unique and creative and fun are still there. That's another highlight of the album for me. Um, It's called I'm blanking on the name of the track. Hold on. I have the Wikipedia page. (laughs) This is what you have to hear. This is like Uh, the adults are talking. (laughs) And also the first song or the second song I'd heard off this was just on the radio when my phone was dead. (laughs) I put on the radio and it was bad decisions where the chorus is uh, they had to get the rights to use Billy Idol's dancing with myself (laughs) because it's the same. (laughs) But that's also a very fun track. I think this album, especially in the first leg is just great track after great track after great track. And I don't think that they're like, I think they're very fun and energetic. And I don't think they're like as experimental as some other bands, obviously. Like, I think they're just kind of doing their own thing and bringing new elements and maybe some experimental elements in there when they want, Mm -hmm. but they're not pushing the envelope. They just want to make great music. Mm -hmm. And I think, they've reached a really good point in their career where they can do that and not be beholden to the legacy that their other albums have forced them into. Mm -hmm. And so if, I mean, if you're a Strokes fan, you've heard this already and like it already. But I think if you have, are like me and heard their first two albums and I thought everything, I love their first two albums and I thought everything else was okay. This album's absolutely worth a shot. And it's the most exciting this band has been in years. And I hope they keep going down this path. Awesome. Yeah, I haven't listened yet, but I definitely plan to after your description. And I already like the strokes. Um, I'm trying to think of what's the most popular song that I would know. Uh, Someday. I think. There's Someday, Last Night. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, their first album's so good. And it's only like 30 minutes. Oh. But it, it sounds like it was recorded in a garage. and it, It's amazing. <laughs> in and out. That's what I need. <laughs> especially, <laughs> especially this year. But, oh, yeah. Awesome. So that's number 10 uh, by the strokes. What's the album title again? Uh, the new abnormal. Awesome. The new abnormal by the strokes. That's Ryan's number 10. Moving into my number 10, um, a very atypical entry to start us off for me. And that's 
honestly the internet show good mythical morning so if you're not familiar this is hosted by rep mclaughlin and link neal they've been youtubers since the beginning of time um i think they were like posting on like their own website and then people would rip their videos and put them to youtube in like 2007 so then they were like well we'll just do this so they really got in at the beginning and then for the last like 10 years or so they've been doing this internet morning show basically called good mythical morning where for about 15 minutes they'll do these random challenges that usually involve food um they'll play games and blah 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 and just a whole bunch of different stuff i grew up watching Rhett and link like I saw the first video they ever uploaded to YouTube, like when I was on the trending page, because like uh, all three of us were like on YouTube pretty early. And ever since then, I've been following them. But I go on and off with Good Mythical Morning because um, I guess I felt like it got repetitious. But over the summer, I actually got back into it. And it was just like the serum for what I needed for this year. Like, I think it is probably what I've spent the most hours this year watching. Really? Yeah, because I'll watch like they have Good Mythical Morning and then they have Good Mythical More and then it ends up being like a little over 30 minutes of content each day. Mm -hmm. But I'll also watch compilations and go back and watch old episodes that I've missed. And I'm just like, I was always watching it. And something about their friendship and their sense of comedy it's just it's really unique like you don't see friends stay together for this long and be successful and still like each other that's actually going to be a theme in another uh entry in my list too but it was just a really good antidote to kind of the melancholy and loneliness of like being trapped um wherever you may be quarantining like day in and day out it was cool to see oh for these 30 minutes i'm gonna watch two best friends throw darts at a map guessing where assorted foods are from and it's definitely it's a unique sense of comedy i feel like so it's not for everyone but if that at all sounds interesting or if you've liked written like in the past i highly recommend getting back into good mythical morning especially these days where it feels like we have surplus time to watch things that are more mindless than <laughs> uh charlie kaufman movies or uh, <laughs> whatever else is gonna be more emotionally demanding uh so yeah good mythical morning is my number 10 Rhett and link they've always seemed so incredibly genuine mm -hmm. and they never like they never changed they just got better yeah like they just got better at what they do and even the sponsored content they do would be like ludicrously good like i think of like honesty or yeah or some of the or the show they had where it was basically just an excuse to write songs like yeah, fun bit songs commercials and stuff. Mm -hmm. so i think that like i've always had this admiration for Rhett and link as compared to other um youtubers from that era who either just like you found out were in some way bad <laughs> <laughs> or they just um like burned out yeah or like they just it became a job like Rhett and link always seem like they do it because they love doing it and if they don't love doing it they find a different way to do it yeah, they're ahead of the curve too like they're approaching youtube like they're a major media company and they basically are becoming that and it's kind of exciting because it's like yeah they're always pushing ahead and doing what they want but it ends up being kind of prescient of where the platform's going so mm-hmm really appreciate all of their work and i appreciate it especially this year so 
Ryan, do we want to move into your number nine? Sure, it's another album. <laughs> Who would have guessed? So it's um, Flaming Lips are one of my favorite bands ever. And they have a weird, long, sometimes imperfect catalog. <laughs> and I think lately they've gone since Embryonic, which is a fantastic album and very weird. Um, it came out like 2006, I believe. They've gone into weirder, more experimental, more heady, more fun projects. But I feel like the quality hadn't reached their classic albums like Yoshimi, Bells the Pink Robots, The Soft Bulletin, which is one of my favorite albums of all time. Mm -hmm. And um, Embryonic, Cause Taste Metallic. Like these are their classic albums to me. And so when they released American Head this year, it was it's still weird. Flaming Lips are always weird. Um, but it was one of their less experimental outings as of late. And it's a more melancholic and somber and in some ways hopeful, but um, still weird as hell album that is some of their best in years. I think it's the best. I think it blows everything they did in the 2010s out of the water. Really? Mm -hmm. And I think that like... I think that was a, a theme for a lot of bands in 2020 is a lot of bands coming back from a lukewarm port part of their career and then just nailing it hard. And I am so happy that this band that I loved and the sound that I loved, particularly the albums like Soft Bolton and Yoshimi, when I got into the band, that was far behind them. Mm -hmm. You know, like those those albums were 15 years in the past. And now it seems like they're finding a way to make the next step in their career while still recognizing and paying homage to their albums of old. Mm -hmm. And I, I find that so comforting in 2020, mm -hmm. especially like the best song on the album is the first track, which is called a, uh, will you return uh, when you come down? It's, a, it's like really powerful and the lyrics are really like emotionally charged and i think lyrically the soft bulletins have a way of putting their feelings on their sleeves putting their mm -hmm. heart on their sleeves um in some ways that sound corny but like when they pull it off well it sounds anthemic and like so genuine um another highlight is uh you and me selling weed <laughs> you know they they don't um they never trade out their oddity for um, accessibility or quality. They find a, they find a way to make it work. Mm -hmm. And also Dave Fridman, uh, the guy who's produced Flaming Lips since early 90s, is I know him because of SRT. He's mm -hmm. the in the SRT department at Fredonia. And it's just like he is the sculptor of so many of my favorite sounds ever mm -hmm. of so many of my favorite albums of so many things that have touched me. And so like seeing him still so late in all of their careers have that effect on me is so exciting. And I, I cannot wait to see, they throw on some crazy live shows. I know with um, quarantine, they did a live show where everyone was in a bubble <laughs> <laughs> and like, like they had an audience that yeah, were all in yeah, bubbles? but they were all yeah they were all in plastic bubbles. That's crazy. Yeah, and so they just like, I think bands like Flaming Lips need to be around to remind us like we need to 
put some energy in live performance. We need to find new ways to make music and we need to do it soon because we're losing a lot of money. (laughs) Now, which album is this of theirs? Because didn't they get popular on like their ninth album? It's their 16th studio album. Oh my God. Yeah. And so like they, I mean, they joke in the past where they were like, yeah, we didn't make good music, so the only way we could catch people's attention is if we confused them. <laughs> and then after a while, they ended up making good music along the way. I think their legacy will carry on in them being one of the best psychedelic rock bands of the 2000s and 90s. And I hope that they have more good albums in front of them. I hope they mature in a way that doesn't make them lose their oddball sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Um and I hope their later albums sound, if not like this, then sound like a natural evolution from this. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah, I definitely, I'm not super well-versed in the Flaming Lips. I know like a handful of songs that I've gotten recommended from like you or Reddit. <laughs> but um, yeah, definitely worth checking out. It's also fairly like politically tinged more than some of most of their other music is. Interesting. I know um, At War with the Mystics was a big like anti-Bush album, mm-hmm. but like this is like, it's more, it is mellower. It's not as, um, I think songs like God and the Policemen and My Religion is You are kind of teetering on that like societal statement side that they do. Yeah. Um, but no, this album is amazing. Flowers of Neptune Six is also a fantastic track. That's actually the first one I heard off mm-hmm. of this record. I a lot of these albums I didn't follow the singles when they were coming out. The Strokes one I did. Um, I think I like to be surprised when an album comes out, mm-hmm. and so especially if it's a band like you know later ones we'll talk about. I'm sure like RTJ, mm-hmm. like when they release a single, it's like oh I know I'm gonna like it. I know I'm gonna like this new album. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just gonna wait till the album's out. Mm-hmm. That's kind of my how i deal with singles that's fair yeah i feel like it makes me go unbiased where it's like i've listened to humble like 30 times before damn drops and it's like oh i love humble it's like well yeah that's the one you know (laughs) that's the one the record label decided you would like yeah exactly but no i definitely i i like that maybe i'll do that next time i don't know if i i don't think i followed them for the only album on my list (laughs) (laughs) i don't even know if there were singles episode not Music really for RTJ4? I think there were. You're spoiling it. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> but maybe there were. Anyway, moving on. That was... Uh, Flaming Lips, American Head. Awesome. So moving on to my number nine. It's actually a movie, but it's a documentary, which I don't know if we usually include in our top list. I think it says more about like us not following documentaries as much as much as it does like us respecting documentaries and <laughs> the same way we respect ordinary like or not ordinary motion picture cinema yeah i try to but i feel like there's so many but anyway my number nine is boys state so like i said this is a documentary it's actually on apple plus which i got free because i got a new iphone for a year and i'm very grateful for that because there have actually been some pretty great movies that i've watched from it but So Boy State is about, in Texas, I think they do it all across the country, but this one follows the Boy State in Texas, and that's where they gather a thousand 17-year-old boys, and they join together, and they have one week to form a government, basically. And what's so interesting about this 
is that even though these are children, not children, they're young men, they ultimately illustrate how the forces in America kind of develop and perpetuate. So there are a thousand people here, but it really focuses on three of the boys, I guess, kind of four. So there's Ben Feinstein, um, Stephen Garza, Robert McDougall, and Renee Ortero. And Stephen and Renee are on one team. They basically create two political parties, um, but they're not the Democrats and Republicans. I forget what names they give them, but they're on one side. And then Ben Feinstein and Robert are, Robert might be on the same team as Stephen, but let's say they're on the other team and they kind of compete in elections and form this government and appoint like cabinets and do all of this and run for election for these thousands of Texas boys. And Stephen is someone who's pretty progressive. He talks about how Bernie Sanders is the one that got him into politics when he was, at this point, he would have been like 14, 15. Um, And since then, he's like led the March for Our Lives in Texas and done a bunch of really exciting stuff. And Renee, who is also like pretty progressive leaning, but it's much more like, I don't want to say abrasive. He knows the difference between right and wrong, and he's going to tell you if you are wrong. And then you have uh, Ben Feinstein, who's like this political animal who knows exactly how to like whip votes and like get these boys together and hear say what they want to hear. And both him and Robert talk about how like, yeah, I don't know if I believe all this stuff I'm saying. Like, I don't really care about abortion. Um but I know it's going to work up the group. I know like guns are going to work up the group. So I talk about it because I think it's going to win me and my team like these elections. And it's just, it's really interesting to watch how this microcosm of American men, there is like a girl state. Most states do them together. I don't know why Texas separates them. It's very strange, but um, I know there's a girl state here, I think. Does New York separate boys and girls? Because I know California does boys and girls. I think I know someone who did a girl state. Really? Yeah. And I think they tried to get me to do a boys date. Like they brought us all in like some random conference room. It was making me and like three other people. And they were like, we think you'd be perfect for a boys date. And I forgot about it the second I left the room. (laughs) You immediately recycled the like reform, the form you had to have mom sign. But yeah, it's just like this, this differential between like speaking what you believe and then speaking what you think people want to hear and like how these forces are present no matter what group of people there is in front of you it's it's so interesting it um even at such a young age you have this microcosm of like people who are doing it for power and people who are doing it for policy and people who are doing it because they care Mm -hmm. and it's like it speaks to like this is a thing you inevitably have to deal with yeah when you in the in a system like the one we live in and just how hard it is to win in a system mm-hmm. against those people that are only really doing it for power. Not mm-hmm. to make it sound like these characters are villains. Like the filmmakers have talked about like showing the finished film to these young men and then the young men realizing like, oh, I'm the villain of this story and like how they grappled with that. And that's like so interesting in its own way because some of the actions that they do, particularly against Renee, are like really cruel. And um, I don't want to spoil it too much, but like 
it's just it's so interesting how the forces play out and it's also a warning sign that like uh progressives that are like oh once the younger generation once they can all vote we'll be okay it's like no (laughs) it's not that cut and dry so i highly recommend boy state on apple tv plus for anyone who has that service i know it's like more niche there's not a bunch of content on there but uh boy state is definitely something to check out if you do have it i'll absolutely watch it when the new m night Shyamalan series comes on i'm like i gotta see that and i <laughs> scroll through and i see boy state i'm like i gotta i'll Shyamalan or boy state. <laughs> i only got one year i need to like pick one of these <laughs> i only have time for one you want to move into your number eight yeah, I don't know if it's on yours or not, if it's on your list. I can not. see your uh, Wikipedia page pulled up, and it is on my list, it is on but list. it's pretty close to where we are right now, so we can just talk about it. Oh, okay. So my number seven, number eight, number eight, number eight <laughs> is uh, Trial of the Chicago 7, which is a film written and directed by Aaron Sorkin about a trial that happened about regarding a riot that took place in the DNC, or outside of the dnc that was basically a political sham riot where the newly elected administration and particularly the justice department and the attorney general wanted to charge seven protesters with conspiracy to incite a riot to basically like um intimidate dissenters and get back at the prior administration Mm -hmm. and it is a harrowing anxiety filled trip of a movie Mm -hmm. that is very essential in a time like this um i've watched a lot of videos on the actual court cases uh and this movie all of them say the movie is pretty accurate like they move timelines around and then they shorten how long things actually were and they cut out a lot of the really crazy stuff. The majority of the film is true. And the essence of the film and what the people were trying to do in both the defendant side and the plaintiff side are true. It really shows how screwed up our judicial system is. It shows how you can be completely in the right. You can be legally in the right. You can be confirmed to be on the right. And if the system just doesn't like you, the system just decides that you're the one it's going to vilify, then you don't stand a chance. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a um, it's a great film. I wouldn't want to say what happens at the end, despite the fact that it's history. Yeah, it's really eye opening, and like all of the stuff going into it, I knew, but to see it, I didn't know about the specific event, but I knew the message it was trying to convey. Mm. But to see it unfold so vividly is just saddening and it's really i mean it's super it's exciting drama Mm -hmm. but it's it's hard to watch at times yeah so this is actually my number seven so i guess one spot above yours i really really love this movie um jeff canada who's on the slash film slash film cast the podcast he always talks about how aaron sorkin writes action scenes with dialogue and -hmm. i feel like he's so right with that description because like you were on the edge of your seat and all people are doing is sitting in a room and talking and we kept remarking about the editing but then you're seeing this editing between like them arguing about it either on their off time in their house or like in the courtroom and then it cuts back to the protesters and you see like it all unfold 
as it's being retold in the context of this new trial mm-hmm. and it's just it's so powerful and it it may not be 100% act- it isn't we know it's not 100% mm-hmm. factual and it does short shrift to how horrible these people were treated especially Bobby Seal mm-hmm. um in particular but it is a great window into what this trial was like what this era was like and i feel like it is more so about the time we're living in right now even so it's like it's able to speak to 2020 while also accurately portraying what the 60s were like and i thought that was really powerful and what stuck with me the most and like this perspectives in the film like you have like the hippies who just want to cause as much mayhem as possible a young progressive who is not who's more who's cares about the issue but is deeply worried about their life and their future as well you've got one um defendant who is writing down every name of every soldier that has died in vietnam every american soldier that has died in vietnam and i think this movie very effectively honestly more than some vietnam movies about vietnam have very effectively portray the loss of life and how pointless it was yeah. in Vietnam. And it shows how these people are in the right in so many ways. And the people that are against them are responsible for the deaths of thousands of American citizens. Thousands of young men. Mm-hmm. who, uh, Thousands of Vietnamese people. And it's like, it's disgusting. It's disgusting that these people can do the things that they do and get away with them yeah and it's it's still happening right of like how many senseless deaths are happening to covid like Mm -hmm. every day you know like they talk about how 4100 people died since the trial started in vietnam for the movie and since just today what probably 2700 people have died and it's just like the movie was obviously made before covid for the most part but like it just felt so resonant and like Another aspect of that is like you allude to Eddie Redmayne's character, Tom Hayden, who, um, by the way, I've never loved Eddie Redmayne in a movie, but I thought he was really good in this. I thought everyone was really good. Me too. I think, well, like they just chew the dialogue. Mm -hmm. They just love, especially Mark Rylance. Oh, he's amazing. Yeah. Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character is so despicable and, and the judge. Yeah. Oh my God. But it's just like, they just milk it for all it's worth Mm -hmm. sasha baron cohen too does Mm -hmm. a fantastic job i bring up hayden though because like it kind of his character and how he plays off of um abby i forget the sasha baron cohen's character's last name oh god abby hoffman yes um the way they play off of each other i feel like it again like speaks to the divides in the left we see today of like you have someone who's saying like nothing matters what we stand for if we don't have power so we have to win power and then push for the policies we believe and then you have another person saying like the system is completely corrupt and you can't win power and work within a system and that's like the same conversations people are having now of like we need to push the system to be better but can we even do that within the system and i think like that conflict that both of the characters go through really spoke to me. And then 
what also spoke to me was just like the respect they have for each other at the end of it of like they're both effective in their own way you know what i mean mm-hmm. and the answer the question isn't answered yeah it's not and it wasn't answered at the end of that trial i mean it certainly felt like it was answered at the end of the trial but it was um it's it's open-ended it's it's like it's so resonant now because it's nothing's changed and if it has changed just changed arguably for the worse yeah it's it's scary i feel like aaron sorkin and all the everyone who worked on this movie does a really good job of capturing that and evoking an emotional response that brings you back to this time and also keeps you firmly grounded in today i think with that we'll wrap up uh trial of chicago 7 that's on netflix it's a netflix exclusive and it's ryan's number eight and my number seven so i guess we'll do my number eight yeah. now mm-hmm. my number eight is uh the beastie boy story so this is another apple tv exclusive and this is adam horowitz and mike d of the beastie boys obviously adam yauk is missing he passed away in 2012 from cancer it's so it's these two uh, former members of the beastie boys kind of retelling their story and having the final say in their legacy right so they go through the beginning of their career how they uh got to meet each other all the way up through working with uh rick rubin i believe and making license to ill and then how that tour kind of sucked all the energy out of them and where they went from there and i love beastie boys's music um i don't go through a lot of early hip-hop because frankly it's homophobic and (laughs) people are like oh you should listen to a tribe called quest and then you get to i can't name any particular song but there are plenty in their discography that are like oh this kind of makes me uncomfortable or like the chronic uh i don't know that's dry that's the first album yeah yeah so it's like i don't know it's been harder for me to go through that that like backlog because it's like i don't know it never (laughs) reasonably it never spoke to me some some certainly do i like tupac and whatnot but Beastie Boys were always kind of like a needle in the haystack of that genre for me. Um, But this kind of put a human element to what the music that I love and the music they've created. And sometimes I feel like I almost need that to like really go the next step in my love for something like having that human aspect behind it um, really pushes it over the edge for me. And that's what this movie did. Um, It was able to put a story behind uh these songs that i love like brass monkey or these songs that i know they're better than like fight for your right to party and stuff like that and it's opened a window for me like i need to go through and listen to paul's boutique because that's an album i haven't heard a single song off of paul's boutique is fantastic and i think um i love the beastie boys and since you've mentioned this i can't wait to watch it mm-hmm. if or when i get apple tv yeah but um I know for me, I've always considered Beastie Boys something different from other standard uh, hip hop groups of the 90s. Like they never felt the same as a as a tribe called Quest, who I really enjoy or a, um, you know, run DMC or a yes. Yeah. Whoever else was around the same time the Beastie Boys were. They always just felt like uh, three frat boys <laughs> who stumbled into some great records and like i have no doubt that they're amazing at what they do so that's not the implication i'd like to give off 
um, because I love their music and I think they're so much fun. Mm-hmm. And I think I just think that like they were always different to me. They were always just full of energy, yeah, and full of life. And they were always like funny and mis- mischievous, yeah. And like fight for your right to party was like, oh, they're they're fighting for their right, like Claral or Pearl clutching at the time, yeah. And it was. It's so fun and funny looking back on. Like, I imagine being a Beastie Boy in the 90s is probably the height of life. (laughs) Like, it doesn't get much more, like, I don't want to say fun, but much more exciting. Yeah, I I feel like that's interesting that you bring that up because I feel like that's the perception I had going into it. But Mm -hmm. it's really, like, when they were, like, the fight for your right era is when they were, like, maybe struggling the most. Mm-hmm. And then when they kind of grounded themselves and focused on what they cared about, which was each other and the music, mm-hmm. that's when they were really happy. And that's when they made even better music, in my opinion, like Ill Communication, uh, apparently Paul's Boutique. Hello Nasty. Hello Nasty, I was just going to say, is maybe my favorite. Yeah, and it just it just tracks their progress through that. And they've just, they've matured so much, similar to, like, Rhett and Link of, like, these friends that were Rhett and Link were like in first grade when they met, but very young age, teenager, if not younger and how they've kind of grown together and matured together and how their art has done the same thing. And um, the Beastie Boys story on Apple TV directed by Spike Jones <laughs> uh, wraps all of that in a nice little package. And it's also an amazing tribute to Adam Yauch, who I hope isn't, I'm saying his name, right? Maybe I should just call him MCA, but it's a very nice tribute for MCA and hearing about how he fought for like freeing Tibet and whatnot was just really powerful. And how the fight for your right to party guys went on to use their voice to show that it's okay to grow up and it's okay to use your platform to push the change you want to see in the world. And it's, it, I just found it really moving and it reminded me how much I love their music. <laughs> I wish we talked about the Tibet concerts more like as a society, as a culture, because I think they were really important and they are really fascinating. Like you got on all of them, you had bands like BC Boys got like Rage Against the Machine, Radiohead, R.E.M., Patti Smith, Red uh-huh. Hot Chili Peppers. You know, this is the best of the best at the time in a lot in rock, alternative rock, at least. There's this quote I love from Tom York when he was asked about it. He said, this is one of the few good things about being a like well-known musician is we get to do stuff like this. We get mm-hmm. to do shit that matters. Yeah. And it's like that is so watching those concerts now, there's there's so much energy and there's so much light, even for bands like Radiohead, who are objectively very depressing. <laughs> Or like R.E.M., you watch them play live in those shows and they're just full of energy. And you can tell that they're proud of what they're doing yeah. and that they they want, um, even at this point, which was a fairly bleak point in some of these artists' careers, they're on stage, like really, they're really passionate about that. Also, the Beastie Boys are just incredible. Some bands have kept using the Tibetan flag at their shows. Really? Yeah, after That's these awesome. concerts. Because like, I think it really... It was really important to them that they did this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I I really appreciate that I was able to be introduced to that that story and whatnot. Um, So I highly recommend it if you're someone that that sounds at all interesting to. If you're someone that loves the Beastie Boys music but knows very little about the people behind the music. That was definitely me before this. 
I highly, highly recommend this documentary. So why don't we move into, we're at now at your number seven, correct? Yes. Okay. Yeah. What is your number seven? So my number seven is uh, Phoebe Bridger's second album, Punisher, who is this like emo folk artist. That's what Spotify calls her. I don't know if I totally agree with the emo label, but um, she makes just incredible indie folk, indie rock tinged music. And she's a very confessional and a very upfront lyricist and vocalist. And she's been working with like the same three people her whole career. And uh, on this album, I mean, she's one of the biggest rising stars in indie music right now. Because she has a band with uh, Connor Oberst from Bright Eyes and a band with Julian Baker. And for the life of me, I can't remember who the other person is. But that one's called Boy Genius. Um, and the other one's called Better Oblivion Community. She doesn't. Her music isn't like especially metaphorical, or I don't want to say deep because it, it's very capable of being very deep. But she's very plain in mm-hmm. her language. She's very obvious. She's very conversational, and it, it leads to songs that have a very deep emotional impact. Uh, one of my favorite, I think, two of my favorite songs of this album are Kyoto and I Know the End. And Kyoto is like a song about her father. And she talks about how like she's on tour in Kyoto and like the rest of her band went to an arcade and she's on the phone with her or on the the phone with her dad. And there's one line that's like, you called from a payphone. They still have (laughs) payphones. It's just like, it's still funny Mm -hmm. and it's still like, it's in some ways heartbreaking, but in other ways it's very like sardonic and it's it's capable of being sort of poke fun at itself Mm -hmm. and that's i think she's a genius lyricist and i hope that she like she's nominated for best new artist and i believe like best alternative album she's up against fiona apple i believe and i'd be happy with either of them winning or the strokes as well i'd be happy with any of them winning i don't get the best new artist thing i was just gonna say she had an album in 2017 that Mm -hmm. was like pretty well received so like i don't know why the grammys decided i'm gonna complete i'm gonna rip the grammys apart and you have to hear this <laughs> oh but i'm excited well like can i say one thing sure black pumas it's a good band i like black pumas the album nominated by black pumas came out in 2019 and the version nominated is and it was before the eligibility so it could have been nominated last year um the version nominated is the deluxe edition <laughs> okay <laughs> the grammys are dumb i feel like all people nowadays recognize that award shows are silly, but like the Grammys feels like the most ridiculous, like up there with Golden Globes. Well, cause it's not only like sometimes the Oscars, they get it horribly wrong often. Sometimes they get it right. Yeah. I don't think, I don't remember the last time the Grammys picked an album and I was like, oh, that was the best album. <laughs> like maybe The Suburbs by Arcade Fire, but even that was the same year My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy came out and that wasn't nominated for best album of the year. Oh my God. God, so that's like, so upsetting. So it's like, you guys just don't, you don't listen to music, do you? <laughs> they listen to what they like, which is Adele and yeah. the stuff with Beyonce that's not too... The the hard hitters, yeah. the superstars. But, awesome. So that's Punisher by Phoebe Bridgers. Um, we talked about it on the show as well. If you want to hear us go a little bit more in depth. I don't know how in depth we did go because Evan didn't like it. And most of the show is us making fun of him for not liking it. <laughs> But, I mean, if you want to check it out, 
Yeah, definitely. I'll definitely link it in the description. So be sure to check out You Have to Hear This. I'm sure many of the albums have appeared or will appear <laughs> um, in their episodes. So my number seven was Trial of Chicago 7. So why don't we hear your number six? Okay. Um, it's another album. My next two are albums. But I think I'm, that after that, there's no more albums on the list. Thank God. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so this one's Car Seat Headrest, uh, Making a Door Less Open. If you follow this podcast, there is no secret that Carsey Headrest is one of my favorite bands. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite things ever, like pieces of art. Some of their albums have so deeply affected me in ways that only music can, I think. Um, this album is not one of my favorite by them. I'll say that up front. I think Teens of Denial and Twin Fantasy are better. But what I really like about this album is after when twin fantasy came out i know a lot of people were like or not a lot of people but some critics were like oh they just remade old music like it's cool and it's really good but i'd like to hear them make new stuff and then they released a new album and a bunch of them were like oh get away from me (laughs) but um this album is some of the songs are as hard-hitting as carcy headrest has always been capable of making and some of them are just fun and weird and dumb and like in a way that I find deeply enjoyable and apparently some other people find very <laughs> annoying. But I think this album marks an exciting change and shift to electronic music, which there are no, like, Cursey Headrest is no, is not averse to it all, but they haven't delved into it with their full lineup. It's formed in 2014, 2013. They haven't delved onto it, into it in a full-length project until Making a Door Less Open. And I am really excited to see what they come out with. Um, I love tracks like uh, There Must Be More Than Blood, which is a sad song. But it's like also this like seven minute like rock, electronic, weird, like atmosphere or atmospheric jam. Um, You also have songs like Can't Cool Me Down and Martin and Weightlifters, which are just so dancey mm-hmm. and so like odd they're so electronic tinged and they've got so many weird vocal effects going on <laughs> and it's like it's it's so exciting to see them venture out into these weird places hollywood which is the song that people either love or hate mm-hmm. <laughs> really hate it reminds me of like pop beck super ironic and weird and like kind of dumb but like you love it for its pure energy and like in this song the drummer andrew katz is just like yelling his heart out and the the radio edit replaced all of his parts with will the lead singer singing them instead which i feel really bad about but yeah no it's um it's totally worth listening to just for the oddball which goes for a lot of these albums i think i think i really embrace it like I, i wouldn't say that i'm in any way adverse to odd music but this year like a lot of bands i really liked and followed anyways decided like i wouldn't say they're like especially experimental they're not like a death grips or a um whoever else of animal collective but they're like let's just get weird and see what happens because <laughs> i think there was like uh how do you respond to the things happening around you normally yeah i think that that was a a part of it and this was true back in 2019 even mm-hmm. like how do you respond to everything that's going on normally and then as things get up go, kept going they just got weirder and weirder yeah 
So this was on my top 10 list until we watched Trial of Chicago 7, and then it fell to the number 11 spot, I know, but I love this album. Uh, You, of course, listened to it before I did because you're a car seat headdress stan. I do love them. I have their body pillows. (laughs) Jesus Christ. It's not true. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. I don't think they sell body pillows. (laughs) I've looked. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so I listened to it once you recommended it to me, and I love this album um i love twin fantasy and um teens of denial teens of denial probably has most of my favorite songs of them but they're all like amazing uh i love how weird this is i love how exciting and quick and like electronic it is it uh it really spoke my language um the summer when it came out and i was listening to it a lot on car rides and whatnot especially like can't cool me down in hollywood like you mentioned um just amazing songs and i'm so excited to see that they can change up their sound a little bit and it still be really exciting and uh well made i think two of the things that are most exciting in this album cycle is one it really feels like the rest of the band are car seat headrests like it's not just will toledo yeah plus some other guys it's like which i never felt like but like it would be easy to do that uh this time you know andrew cat sings the drummer or sorry the guitarist ethan ives has a song where that he wrote and sang and it's like that's that's cool you know that's cool that this is like a collective now and you go and see them live this is the other thing i was going to say you go and see them live and they have this idea of like no song is ever really done so why would we stop working on it and so every when I, we saw them live all the songs were so incredibly different from their album yeah. versions but all so good like mm-hmm. the one song sober to death it was a like folk rock anthem that was in a different key that was a uh, then worked in a cover of Powderfinger by Neil Young and Stevie <laughs> Wonder's "Don't Forget About a Thing," it's or "Don't You Worry About a Thing." They embody like on the road. Let's change everything. Let's experiment. Let's keep going. Mentality of music making that is so exciting and is sadly like not. I think in some ways a lot of people are experimenting because they're like, I can't have live shows. What can I do instead? But I think also like the the pandemic has stifled some of that creativity and I hope that it comes back in full force when mm-hmm. we can have gigs again. Definitely. Seeing them live was amazing. Uh, I miss concerts. They opened so on much. Can't Cool Me Down. And I yeah. was like, oh my God, this is so, <laughs> this is so cool. It was a great concert and a great album. Um, so definitely check out Making a Door Less Open by Car Seat Headrest. So I guess we'll move into my number six, which is also an album. It's, I believe, the only album. Uh, don't click to the Wikipedia page like you know what it's going to be. Um, it, of course, is Run the Jewels 4, RTJ4 by um, Run the Jewels, obviously. So that includes Killer Mike and LP, and they have never made bad music at least as far as i know um given their collective rtj like every album is basically equally good in my opinion um maybe i'd put the first one a little lower than some of the other ones maybe the second one a little higher than everything else but i think what's changed in some ways is like the times that these are coming out like this album they actually pushed forward because um, of the protests that were going on this summer and they were like fuck it we know america needs this and they weren't wrong it was this was like the album that america needed this summer but i don't think we deserve it <laughs> i don't think we deserve um the wisdom 
and the spitfire nature of both killer mike and lp yeah i know this was on your list as well Ryan. yes it was my fifth this is the highest my highest rated album this year i think oh really yeah because i think i go back and forth in my mind because there's some albums where it's like i couldn't stop listening to this one i really love this one this band has had a great impact on me but i when i listen to rtj4 i get a feeling that this is something bigger than me and this is something bigger than all of the other albums I listened to this year. And um, I'm now realizing I forgot an album that might have ended up on this list, but whatever. <laughs> um, it was another rap album. That's why it reminded me. But like, I've been a fan of RTJ for such a long time. And they're one of the most consistent acts working nowadays. It's crazy how much good music these guys pump out. And... This might be my favorite album by them. It's short, it's concise, it's to the point, and it hits hard. Mm-hmm. And like, it speaks to the like the sign of the times that we're living in. And it's just, I mean, it sucks that it does. Yeah, it sucks that you can write an album that has the lines "I can't breathe" before the George Floyd stuff happens. Yeah, like, yeah, there are just like so many songs like you have just or never look back or yankee and the brave and they're just like absolute bangers that still have like the message tied within them but then it ends on um a note for the firing squad a few few words words for the firing squad and if you're not familiar with run the jewels at all obviously listen to their music but also just like pull up genius and just listen just read the lyrics of this because it's it's so heartbreaking and it's so beautiful and it's Mm -hmm. powerful and it's one of my favorite album closers ever, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that it ends, at the, at the end, it ends on the Yankee and the Brave sample. And it's just like, it feels like they're so funny yeah. <laughs> as well. Like, you know, in the first song, LP jokes about how Killer Mike can't die because he owes him money on, for the Nikes <laughs> that he bought yeah. him. And it's like, these are two friends who just like hassle each other and like are kind of like they depend on each other so much and they go back and forth and so much of this album is dependent on their chemistry which is top form yeah and it's like these guys are so good at what they do and they're even better when they do it together and it's i think my favorite lyric of the year is i can't like go through the whole thing but this long passage and walking in the snow that's just so obvious it's it can't be about what happened this year. It was written before it happened this year, but it's so obviously about, it so obviously speaks to the problems we have. Yeah. And how we, how, like, they are not new. They haven't been new for a very long time. Have you, um, is that the one where it's, uh, people say to my wife that he could be another Malcolm or Martin referring to Killer Mike, and she says, uh, I need a husband more than the world needs another martyr. I think about that line like every day. That's a great line. I was, I don't remember if it's in that same stanza or not, but it's the, it's the one where he says, I can't breathe. (laughs) The one where he makes reference. He talks about how the media put up criminals that look like you and me. Yeah. And so it's just, but also, I mean, on the and the same coin, this album has songs like Ooh La La, which yeah. are just club bangers. Yeah. And like 
you know, they don't forget to have fun along the way. Mm-hmm. I think just another one of my favorite lyrics of the year is just refrain, which is uh, look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. So good. Mm-hmm. And like these things they say, like that line in particular to me, like as I think about it more, I realize there's so many meanings to it. It's so, so smart. And these guys are like two of the best in rap right now absolutely and they make each other better like mm-hmm. they push each other what we were talking about with good mythical morning or like beastie boys it's just like when you have these artists that just have like chemistry beyond imagine and they're just able to like make great content and make each other better along the way and like grow and mature together it's so powerful and then to have not that this is going to be their end result but this magnum opus of RTJ4 that comes out at the perfect time is just, it's so powerful. It might be the most 2020 entry in our 2020 <laughs> list, you know? It's so present. Also, you've got like the features like Pharrell, Zach, Zach De La Rocha, Rocha. I Mavis love that he's Staples, on these songs. Josh Hami from Queens of the Stone Age does guitar on uh, Pulling the Pin. Mm. And it's like, you know, Mavis Staples and Zach De La Rocha, you want to get two, like, revolutionary figures. It's like, <laughs> those are the two you pick. Yeah. You know, like, there are Rage Against the Machine lyrics that still, like, eat up my brain as to how, like, well thought out and how brutal they are. I think that this will go down as, like, a classic album. It's a good thing that all the no- albums we talked about were nominated for Album of the Year. The Grammys got them? it, right? No, none of them were. RTJ4, was it? <laughs> no, no. Fuck is wrong with these people? Yeah, none, of, none of these albums were nominated for album of the year. Oh my god! And I was gonna say the one album. I'll maybe I'll mention it in honorable mentions. I want to throw clipping out there as well as one of my the best rap albums of the year. I mm-hmm. love that album. But we are already at like an hour, so I think we're gonna speed things up a bit. But that's RTJ Four by Run the Jewels. Highly recommend. Um, it was my six and Ryan's five. Yeah. So who goes next? That's a good question. I have four left. I have five left. All right, so you go next. Okay, um, but mine's also definitely on your list, mm-hmm. so I'm gonna mess it up. Much like Beastie Boys, musicians being filmed on a stage by an acclaimed director, we have David Byrne's American Utopia. I so I know Ryan's a huge Talking Heads fan. He got me to watch Stop Making Sense, which I love. Eventually, I'm going to give it a five on Letterboxd. I just need to wait. I need to wait and let that it happen is at the, some point. It is the best thing ever committed to film. So I get your hesitation. <laughs> Jesus. So this is a recording by Spike Lee of David Burns' stage show on Broadway where he performs uh, his solo songs and also Talking Heads songs alongside this huge diverse band of people playing very strange instruments and dancing around in makeup and this show was just a shot of dopamine into my arm into my brain i should say like directly you hadn't talked about it when it came out so i was like oh maybe ryan doesn't know that they filmed it and released it so i was like we have to watch it together and surprise you and you did know uh, about it but i think you had forgotten yeah well i knew they were gonna film it and release it i didn't know it was out already yeah i didn't know they'd I, I figured they'd filmed it i didn't know they released it and so like i'd seen i remember like a few days or sorry a few weeks prior i think i was out with some friends in college and i was looking up american utopia stuff and i was like oh they're making it into a film and then i just was like i'll hear of it when it comes out and you did and i, and I did talking heads are one of the best bands ever mm-hmm. um definitely I've, 
top 500. <laughs> Rolling Stones on their original 500 best artists list, or maybe the maybe not original, but the one that I looked at when I was getting into music listed talking heads at 500 of 500 <laughs> and like i had to have to imagine bands like eminem were or artists like eminem were higher than them and it makes my fucking blood boil that this band they they should be top 10 top 20 yeah. in my opinion they like i see talking heads influence everywhere remain in light is such a wholly unique and bizarre album that every time I listen to it, I'm like, I don't know how human beings made this. <laughs> and like, they're real instruments, but like, they don't sound real. And like, David Byrne's frenetic, odd vocal gestures and expressions and his very conversational way that he sings is so captivating to me. And American Utopia just shows David Byrne as this man who... To me, it's like him saying, well, I've done everything. What haven't I done? <laughs> and then he takes this incredible live show that he's made. And I want to read his book called um, uh, How to Make. It's called like How to Make Music or something. And there's an entire chapter on it just on staging. <laughs> and I, I want to read that after watching this. But um, this was basically a live show he had done, a live tour he had done for his album American Utopia. And then when it was done he started it on broadway and he basically just does the live show now on broadway yeah and like so now he he's the type of artist to where people will pay to see him people will fly across the country to go and see him yeah like you don't have to he doesn't need to go to you <laughs> and it's like what he's capable of doing and what the artists and the incredible talent he has on stage with them and how fresh and how new and how bold these 40-year-old Talking Heads songs sound are is is captivating. And it's, it's weird and it's awesome. Mm -hmm. And like even his new solo stuff is still incredible. His yeah. St. Vincent stuff is great. The new album he did with Brian Eno is so good. It's, it's so clean and it's mm -hmm. so fun. He, he still has those societal digs and those like political statements have always kind of been there in his music i think they're kind of coming more and more out mm -hmm. or at least people are noticing them more and more mm -hmm. but like it's so especially on this one he makes his politics very clear in this yeah he, go he goes out of his way to talk about how like everyone should vote but they should also vote in like their local elections for like school board and county clerk mm -hmm. and all that and how important that is and that's not a niche message but it's a message that is unique to david byrne and shows that he cares about all these things and like he wants to put good in the world by making incredible music, but also by registering people to vote and using his platform. Like we talked about um, with all of these people so far, whether it's Beastie Boys or Art Run the Jewels of just like making incredible music and then going beyond that. And this stage show shows that just the filming by Spike Lee. Too, oh, it's, it's so just, good. It's all so good. I don't even know. <laughs> it's almost hard for me to articulate because it's just like pure positive emotions like this and stop making sense both are for me and it's like the words that i conjure up it's almost hard to articulate right it's like the words i try and conjure up are basically just the words that uh show up behind the screens when their silhouettes are lit during girlfriend is better i think but uh that scene and stop making sense you probably know it if you've seen it um it's just it's just pure emotion 
I mean, a lot of the songs he gives the sides for and gives like thoughts about them, like when they were making them at the time and background. Like one of my favorite ones is Izimbra, where he talks about these Dadaists, um, absurdist poem writers and artists working at the time who would like respond to this absurd world that they lived in by making absurd art Mm -hmm. and like how it's meaningless but there's something profound in that meaningless and then Mm -hmm. they go into the song Izimbra or um one of the the high a highlight in the film is uh his cover of Janelle Monae's Hell You Tom Bout and it's 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 so I almost powerful. forgot about that. That's very political. He, go, he goes way beyond just registering voters. And he also like that that is the most spikely part of the movie in the way yeah. that it's shot and the yellow text and the zoom ins mm-hmm. and like the portraits. And it's I mean, how cool is it to have a Spike Lee joint, you know? And how cool is it for Spike Lee to say that a David Byrne concert film is is, is a joint of his? It's amazing. A David Byrne Spike Lee joint is like all I need in my life. <laughs> also I think Road to Nowhere is such an incredible song and I'm so happy they end with it. And it's like, it's one of their like least, it's, it's one of their vaguer songs and that's not really like, it's, they, there's not a lot of lyrical material to it, but I find it every time I listen to it so incredibly powerful. Yeah. And it's like, it's so simple. It's a really simple song, but it, it speaks to this like feeling of like, I don't know where that where the hell I'm going, but I we're going together, I guess. Yeah. You know, or like even even the beginning. I mean, the first line of the song is we know where we're going, but we don't know where we've been. And it's like, if you'd like to come along and help me sing this song, then that's all right. And walking through the theater as they do it. Mm hmm. In this, this more than Stop Making Sense, he makes the audience a very clear part of the staging. Yeah. Like, in Stop Making Sense, the audience are almost secondary to what's going on. Very much on purpose. Hmm. Like, they only start showing the audience, I think, in the last song, Cross-Eyed and Painless, or or maybe the song before that. But um, in this film, the audience is a part of staging, a part of lighting, a part of portrayals. Yeah. I don't think a single person was sitting. Everyone was standing yeah, no. and dancing because it's like there's something so infectious and awkward about this man. And like he knows it and he yeah. plays into it. And yeah. he's so I also think like when he talks about how when he talks about everybody's coming to my house and he's like, I sing this song like someone is unhappy that people are coming to their house. <laughs> and when we commissioned this like children's choir to sing it, they sing it like they're looking forward to it like they're happy about it and he's like i would like to sing it that way but i know i can't Mm -hmm. and that's just me and i'm gonna have to get used to that and i think there's so much there's so much emotion in so many of these songs and even like he goes all the way back to like don't worry about the government from talking at 77 and he doesn't play psycho killer which is surprising yeah i'm almost glad he didn't (laughs) me too because i I went to I'd rather hear his St. Vincent stuff and his solo stuff because I've heard cuts. I've heard Psycho Killer so many times in my life. <laughs> yeah. So we could probably talk about Talking Heads forever. So I think we're going to move on from American Utopia, but that's on HBO Max and I highly recommend it if you are a Talking Heads fan, but especially if you aren't because maybe you want to stop making sense first, but mm. David Byrne is just amazing. So I mean, Stop Making Sense is a great place to start in their discography in general. 
honestly. Yeah. But like, I mean, I personally would say start with like, just do it in order because all their music is great. Yeah. But like, if you want like a good compilation of music that will, without a doubt, make you love this band, then Stop Making Sense is such a perfect place to start. Definitely. So I got my number four. What are you at? I'm at three. <laughs> okay, so I'll, I'll go. My number four is the first video game we're going to be talking about. You clicked to the wrong page because my number four is Spider-Man Miles Morales. The PS4 Spider-Man game that came out um, a couple of years back in 2018, I believe, is one of my favorite games ever made. It feels like it was perfectly tailored to me of like a bunch of objectives and things you can accomplish, but like each thing you accomplish, Spider-Man gets a little bit stronger. His combat gets a little better. And it's not like Assassin's Creed fetching feathers. It's like, I'm going to, in this game, I'm going to train with holograms that Peter set up. And through that, it's going to make me better at fighting and I'm going to unlock skills and blah, blah, blah. So everything about the gameplay of both the original Spider-Man on PS4 and this new one is just... 100% what I want in a video game like this. Very reminiscent of like the Batman Arkham games, of course. We did a whole podcast about Marvel's uh, PS4 Spider-Man. That's how much we loved it. And I finished the game. Woo! I finished it. It took a little while, but I did it. <laughs> you did it. So Miles Morales brings all those things back, but it really adds on the game in the sense of like it incorporates the extra superpowers that miles morales has from the comics and from uh the movie into the spider-verse so you get to fight enemies with um your kind of bioelectricity you get to camouflage during stealth missions and basically be invisible like we see in these other miles morales properties and being able to play through that was so much fun and then on top of the gameplay it creates a unique story that as far as i'm aware is completely unique to from the comics um, introducing new characters along those lines it's different than the uh, spider-verse movie and it just is able to really do justice to this new up-and-coming character that is already so beloved even though he's like under 10 years old i think he came out in 2011 and do all of that while making a really really fun game it is kind of short i platinumed it in probably like 20 25 hours but in some ways that's exactly what i wanted <laughs> this year of just like quick really fulfilling games that i could get through like uncharted or could have been ten dollars shorter <laughs> yeah i'm um, kidding i haven't played it yet but it's 50 i think so could have been definitely could have been 40 <laughs> but i uh i highly recommend it i know it's on your list of yeah, things to play i love to play it i love the first spider-man game it was so much fun and i think more than anything else one thing i'm really looking forward to is miles morales as a character is just like I think it injected Spider-Man with this much needed inertia yeah. in pop culture relevancy because like you can't be Batman. Like if there's any DC character you can be, it's Batman that isn't a sidekick. <laughs> you can't be Batman. You can't be or or in the Marvel mov movies, you can't be Captain America. You can't be super or you can't be Superman. That's obviously DC, but whatever. <laughs> you can't be Iron Man. You could be Spider-Man. Yeah. I mean, you don't have the cool shit, but like the attitude, the the whole like I'm a high schooler going with the shit. Yeah. Also in the Spider-Verse, in Enter the Spider-Verse, where it's like you've got old Peter Parker and the new young Spider-Man. It's very much like 
a we want to make it clear that this character is for everyone and this character is going to be for like young people always yeah this character is not peter parker i mean peter parker is like when i think of spider-man i think of peter parker that doesn't mean spider-man is peter parker yeah spider-man is miles morales it's um gwen stacy it's anyone who takes up the mantle as spider-man anyone can wear the mask Mm -hmm. like that's the most important lesson we've learned from these movies like the 2000s it was um great power great responsibility i feel like 20 times it's anyone can wear the mask and the game definitely plays into that like he is the spider-man for the residents of harlem like Mm -hmm. the residents of harlem will say like he's our spider-man whereas other characters will be like oh you're the secondary one like you're the backup (laughs) yeah it's just a really exciting game with a unique story and a character that i think the pop the cultural zeitgeist is really coming to love and be familiar with and be in that echelon of characters like peter parker and tony stark and um maybe not bruce wayne level (laughs) but (laughs) well there's this interesting thing with miles morales where there's so a lot of people were so quick to embrace miles morales and like i'm sure that like in i don't i don't like in part i'm sure because the character is so well written the part that surprised me about that i think it has more to do with the popularity of spider-man and like the ubiquity of Mm spider-man but like none of bruce wayne no one who replaced batman after bruce wayne would hold a candle to the level of iconography bruce wayne has yeah or the person who replaced iron man forgive me i'm not as much of a marvel reader um obviously falcon Mm -hmm. but like miles morales is already becoming sort of ubiquitous everyone knows who miles morales is and that's really cool and like no one no one had that when i guess there's no film adaptation of it which is in part but no one had that for like when dick grayson became batman in the comics or like when asriel became batman in the comics it's just not it's just a thing that's really hard to do successfully mm-hmm. and they're doing it somehow mm-hmm. and that's awesome that's so cool that miles morales is spider-man and he's not spider-man instead of peter parker or in replacement of peter parker he's just spider-man yeah they have to you have to have the character the new character like stand on their own which i know is hard mm-hmm. when it's like it's like we killed off steve rogers we need a new steve Ro- a new captain america mm-hmm. um so then they have to do it that way. But if you let the character like kind of stand on their own, I feel like that's an easy way to get attached. Plus, Miles Morales is just such a great character. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But with that, I think we can move on to your number three. So are we in the top three? I think we're in the top three. Okay, let's hear it. This movie is not for everyone. <laughs> um, I have made it no secret in numerous podcasts how much I love the work of Charlie Kaufman. I think he's one of my favorite writers. I think he's very smart and cerebral and weird and experimental. And I think film needs a Charlie Kaufman. I think film needs someone who makes people go, huh? <laughs> and Tim Allen. No, no one makes me do that more than him. You know, I see a lot. Of, there's a lot of experimental filmmakers I follow. But I, consistently, I'm like, is he the most experimental? Is he the weirdest? Because in it's in... It, it's not just in presentation that he's weird it's in writing it's in plotting it's in format it's mm. in like structure it's in everything it's in how little actors he wants in a movie <laughs> you know it's it's in staging it's in editing it, and this this pervasive 
auteurness of it all, which I'm not one that prescribes to auteur theory at face value, but like I can't watch a Charlie Kaufman movie and think it was made by anyone else. Mm -hmm. And that's so incredible for someone whose work is so old and at this point very influential, you know, especially films like Eternal Sunshine and Adaptation. Mm -hmm. But um, this is Charlie Kaufman when he's at his weirdest you know, I wouldn't say this is, I wouldn't go as far as to say it's his weirdest film quite yet, because the, they're like, I would say it's pretty much close to Synecdoche levels, mm-hmm. which is like his magnum opus of bizarreness mm-hmm. and like sadness in many ways. <laughs> but this is, I'm thinking of ending things. It's based off a novel by Ian Reed. It came out September of this year, I believe. Yeah. It stars Jesse Buckley, Jesse, or yeah, Jesse Buckley and Jesse Plemons that confused me. Uh, Tony Collette and David Thewlis. And it's about this uh, woman whose name is literally the woman in the screenplay yeah. who um, goes on a, uh, who with her current boyfriend um, drives to meet his parents to this secluded farm. And she's thinking, she's unsure about the relationship. And that's about as far <laughs> as one should know before going into this movie. Definitely. And it is, in some ways, it plays out like a horror movie. In some ways, it's this weird drama. It is sad. <laughs> it is so very sad. It it's it makes me so happy that a company like Netflix will shove, throw money into this and see what happens. Because Anomalisa was a flop. Yeah. And so, and it makes me really sad that he has such a hard time getting the funds to make his movies. Yeah. But I'm I'm so happy that he can make stuff like this. And I'm so happy that he's still doing it. I'm so happy he can still find ways to surprise me. <laughs> I mean, even like, I think there are aspects of this movie without going spoilery where I saw like the first, because I know Charlie Kaufman's work. I'm familiar with it. The first five, ten minutes, I was like, oh, I know what's going on here. <laughs> but like, I know that that would be surprising to someone who isn't as familiar with his work and like he just is amazing at what he does and like you might not be a fan of what he does you might be confused by what he does it might not reach you in the same way that other films and directors do but what he he is so incredible at what he does that it doesn't there is an objectivity in that Mm -hmm. definitely i feel i love charlie kaufman um aspects of this movie resonated with me a lot more than other aspects um I am someone that prefers the Eternal Sunshine. Uh, I haven't seen Adaptation yet or Being John Malkovich, but I really, really want to. I really, I think I prefer when he's a little reined in, mm-hmm. but I also am really, really grateful that he is able to go to Netflix and be like, I want to make a movie in Netflix because this is just what they do. They just throw as much money at people, whether it's Alfonso Cuaron or mm-hmm. um, uh, Martin Scorsese. I don't know why I like forgot his name <laughs> for a second. I haven't thought about Martin Scorsese apparently in like months. Um they just give these people as much money and they're like, make whatever movie you want. And I'm, I'm so grateful that this particular movie exists and is able to kind of capture what makes Charlie Kaufman unique and special and an important voice in the film world right now. Yeah. It's a, it's a good movie for the times, probably not good to watch, but it's good at describing what the times feel like (laughs) depressing and lonely and (laughs) in your own head. (laughs) It's also like in Christmas, there's this like melancholic nostalgic, on we and i think a lot of people feel that this movie particularly resonates with me because 
of all the snow and of all the metaphors in the snow and it's um it's so it's such so worth a watch mm-hmm. and uh, i also think like as <laughs> i think in the beginning of his career john malkovich or not john malkovich charlie kaufman needed a reason for the weird shit to happen in his movies like oh they're erasing his memories and he's going through them one at a time oh it's a portal to john malkovich's head uh-huh. they don't need to be good reasons yeah <laughs> or sorry they don't need to be easy to explain reasons they just need to be reasons mm-hmm. oh it's an author who's so obsessed with their own work that they start envisioning themselves in their book or mm-hmm. them yeah like he's reached this point where it's like when the weird stuff starts happening there's no explanation for him and that's just the movie yeah and it's this it's this abstract way of filmmaking i think it's more it's, while watching this movie i was like this is more like some paintings i've looked at this is more like some yeah. art i've seen than it is like a structured movie and i don't mean that in any way as an insult i mean that in like it is about conveying an emotion mm-hmm. and it does that so effectively that the logic points between actions don't need to matter mm-hmm. don't need to make sense because it's led by emotion and not um and not logic or facts yeah which is a weird ben shapiro way of phrasing it <laughs> but like a lot of stuff that will seem like continuity's errors in this movie are very purposeful yeah every it feels like there's intention behind everything mm-hmm. so this is i'm thinking of every ending things by charlie kaufman a I, netflix original i believe yes yeah okay i think our next two are the same i have three left i think two of the three are the same i agree <laughs> because i don't think they've come up and i think th- my number three is in your list and we're gonna say it on three one two three middle, middle ditch and schwartz, schwartz. <laughs> it's my number one it's your number one it's you did number, number one. one i cannot stop okay it's not the most important thing that came out this year but i can't stop thinking about it and watching it it is so good it is transcendent good <laughs> okay for anyone who doesn't know middle ditch and schwartz refers to thomas Middleditch and ben schwartz of silicon valley and parks and rec fame respectively so they do improv together and netflix and these two creators had the bright idea to record some of their live shows everything is completely improvised the oofs the goofs the spoofs (laughs) i'm like becoming thomas metal in real time um it's all improvised and they talk with the audience for like five minutes and they get a feel for a scene and then they play it out over 45 minutes and it is so good it is it has become the thing that I have to show everyone before it would be like Bo Burnham's What or Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog. Like Middle Ditch and Schwartz is now like, if you're one of my close friends and you haven't seen it and I have three hours alone with you, we are watching Middle Ditch and Schwartz because it is... That was a loud motor. That was very loud. <laughs> are you leaving this in? I might because I can see the waveform that it caused. It's so loud. Um, but yeah, Ryan, tell me why you like the spoofs and the goofs. So RTJ4, <laughs> you know, how I said RTJ4 is two people at their top form that are better together. Yeah. Mildred Schwartz is the run the jewels of comedy specials. It might just be. It's like, so I like stand up. I think we're in a generation where stand up is a thing that's old 
and already happened. And so all of our favorite stand-up comedians either have to be really fucking good at it, like a John Mulaney, mm-hmm. or completely subvert the uh, the medium altogether, like a Nanette or a um, Bo, uh, Burnham. Bo Burnham. I'm like particularly his last one. Make happy. Make happy. I'm <laughs> sorry. It's one of my. It's like one of my favorite comedy specials ever. And this is just. 45 minute improv and it's i've never seen anyone do it and i'm sure it's a thing that people do i'm sure it's common but like the uncertainty is so much fun to watch and especially when things start falling apart (laughs) it's so funny like in the third episode there's this part where thomas just forgets the name forgets who's what (laughs) forgets which characters are doing what and he's like walking around like how do we let this happen <laughs> as they're trying to figure it out? It's like every moment can be a comedic moment. Yeah. These people are doing something that I've never seen anyone else do. And they might be the best at it. Yeah. And it's like, it's so cap. It's so, I say that word a lot, especially in regards to David Byrne, but so captivating to watch. Cause it's like, you're just along for the ride and anything could happen. They could start crawling across the crowd. There could be an alien. They can, crash a wedding with a short guy yeah you know it's it's so off the rails Mm -hmm. even some of the interviews are like just bonkers (laughs) they're just messing with people yeah my favorite thing is that like it reveals that structure is inherent in us like there's something about it's not like pauline kale and um malton like leonard malton it's not like these people like invented movie structure based on the movies they've seen and now everyone must adhere to that it's like there's something in us that wants things to adhere to like a three-act structure Mm -hmm. and you have you have the second episode which is law school magic or something it's called and these characters are trapped in a these students are trapped in a loss in like a law school classroom and one of their students is like don't go in that door and then it's like boom we have a story and then it follows like yeah, a and, three and we structure. have a twist yeah you know? like I, that's my favorite episode because there's a before the twist happens and an after the twist happens and one of the characters does not or one of the actors does not know what the twist is yeah <laughs> they're gonna like they're gonna be so surprised when it happens the audience doesn't know like this show isn't just them trying to make the audience laugh it's them trying to make each other laugh absolutely <laughs> and that's so so fun like they're there are these moments one of my favorite jokes is when like thomas makes this like threatening call to ben as like his boss and he's like go 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 to north 31st street and he and he's like well i'm on 32nd street i'll be there in like five minutes and thomas is like oh you're pretty close (laughs) (laughs) it like captures how you never know what your partner's gonna say and that's the magic of improv I'm laughing just thinking about it. In the third episode, when uh, Ben Schwartz it, like bumps into Miltich and Miltich like zips up his fly and like goes to watch his hands, and Ben Schwartz is like, "Oh, I guess I'm in a bathroom." And then Thomas Middleditch walks out of the proverbial bathroom, and Ben Schwartz is like, "I guess I gotta take a shit." Like, they these situations, they're not created by one or the other; they're created together, like in real time, and it's so. And they have fun to, to watch. They have to figure out what's going on yeah. as much as the audience does <laughs> and it's like it's so weird but it's like it's i think like i try and 
with a lot of these year-end lists, it's really hard because there's something that I think is the most important thing. Like, that will really transcend my generation, hopefully. And, like, that always ends up in the list. Sometimes it ends up at number one. But with this one, it was just like, this made me so happy. Yeah. Like, I watched this so many times. <laughs> and I told so many people about it because I just couldn't stop thinking about it. I couldn't stop laughing at mm-hmm. it. And maybe that's what we need in 2020 is just two inoffensive guys doing the spoofs. That's always what they, that's what they yeah. for, call jokes. Do, um, doing goofs, doing spoofs. Yeah, doing goofs, doing spoofs. And that's just, that is the best content of 2020. I would argue it's the third best, <laughs> but it's it's up there. And I have to shout out Amanda, who had me watch this. And then I got home and I was like, Ethan, Ryan, shut up. We're watching the Audition Schwartz episode two, which I hadn't seen yet. Mm-hmm. And we I reintroduced you guys to this world. And it immediately became like what we were quoting around the house all the time. And like, I can see one and two for me being super close I think that they could be switched like tomorrow. Maybe I'll think my number two pick is my number one pick, but like I, I was just looking at the list and I'm like, what did I enjoy most? How yeah. many times did I return to this thing? <laughs> I watched the audition sports so many times that it was like, this is, this has changed my sense of humor in some <laughs> yeah. ways. That, which hasn't happened. I don't know about you, but hasn't happened for me since like probably Bo Burnham. I mean, like I I make jokes in the form of like Rhett and Link a lot more now. Since or I'm John Mulaney as well. Or John Mulaney, yeah. But like this feels like a whole new level. This is like this new feels chunk new, of my yeah. personality. <laughs> it's well, what they're doing. It's I don't think since I'm not that into improv, I clearly don't know how new this is. But I think what they're doing, at least in the scale that they're doing it in, and the the, the audiences it's playing to, is really new and really exciting. And I'm really glad that it that people really latched onto it yeah i won't go so far to say that like new improv that good improv is new but like the way they shoot it is so well like i always think Mm -hmm. about the shot i think it's of ben schwartz playing a father character talking about how they're going to get rid of their son and the camera goes from like um the focus is on ben and then they change the focus to thomas in the back playing the child and he's like or no, the focus is on thomas in front as the dad and they're zooming into ben on the back playing the child and and ben's like daddy (laughs) (laughs) it's so well good and like i'm sure they've tried to shoot improv before but it's just been like a fixed camera like no this is like professionally done in a really amazing way one of my favorite shots is when ben as a character that is the reveal of the second episode is running away thomas there's this shot this is this wide shot on the ground looking up at thomas that's like a dutch angle and thomas is like this and he's like don't let him get too far <laughs> and it's like how did you get that shot it's so good it feels yeah. like it feels planned sort mm-hmm. of like i i have faith in these people that this is not planned and like there are some times where it's like oh this really wasn't planned <laughs> yeah but it's just it's too good to believe almost well, I your number one, because I can, or your number two yep. is my number one. Okay. So why don't we go through my number two? Because Mel Ditch and Schwartz is my number three. I can see why we usually have more structure when we do. Yeah, this. exactly. <laughs> but this is fun. It's more conversational. Mm-hmm. We'll probably change it back next year. <laughs> <laughs> my number two is, I guess, the only book on our list. One of the only books I read that actually came out this year, but it's by Hank Green and it's called A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor. So this is a sequel to An Absolutely Remarkable Thing, which tells the story of April-May, which is, yes, a punchline. 
that is never addressed in the story, which I really appreciate. <laughs> um, she is walking through New York in the middle of the night, and she sees this like beautiful statue that someone just made. And she's like, instead of just being someone that looks at something and says, this is cool, and then walks on, I'm going to like really appreciate this art. So she walks up to it and she calls her friend Andy and they come and they shoot a document like a fake documentary with it where they're pretending to interview this art statue. And then she gets home to her apartment, goes to bed, wakes up, turns out that she made the first contact with an alien race and that these art statues are spread out around the the globe. So that's the first book and it chronicles that story and it's about this sci-fi concept but it's also about like what social media does to us and how it can affect our perception and our relationships and whatnot especially when you have a meteoric rise in your popularity but then the sequel an absolutely remarkable no the sequel a beautifully foolish endeavor yes it's so many words it's really a mouthful takes that idea to the next level and really ramps up the science fiction and it's hard because i can't really talk about the plot details without without spoiling an absolutely remarkable thing and i think everyone should read both of these books but it like got me back into science fiction and like particularly reading science fiction because i always thought like i like the movies but maybe they're a little too heady uh but this taught me like how exciting these stories are and like how riveting it's been a long time since I like couldn't put down a book and I was thinking about it and dreaming about it while I was reading it. And A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor definitely checks off all of those boxes. If you're into sci-fi at all, if you're into conversations about social media, if you like the Vlogbrothers, um, John and Hank Green, who are, of course, authors, but also YouTubers and science educators and whatnot, I highly, highly recommend this book. It's a, it's a super easy read too. Like the concepts are kind of new and interesting and not hard to grasp, but like heady, but like the way it's told is so present and uh, approachable. It's a really great entrance into kind of modern science fiction, I feel like. Yeah, I love to read this book because I'm, I'm a big fan, a big fan of the work vlogbrothers um the only book i've read from john is the fault in our stars this has been on my this has been something i've been meaning to read for a while i just am really bad at reading books really bad at getting two books i'm really bad at staying up to date on what books are good and worth checking out funnily enough i'm a big fan of Lindsay ellis mm-hmm. uh the youtuber she got she just recently published her first book and the pitch they used to say, like, this book can sell, the book they used as a comparison was an absolutely remarkable book. Oh, thing. really? Yeah. Yeah, no, I love science fiction. I think that it's, like, in, in many ways, it's more of a classification than it is a genre because mm-hmm. you can have class, you can have science fiction action, science fiction drama, science fiction horror, mm-hmm. you know. But, like, yeah, no, I, I'm very excited to read it. Definitely, yeah. It's one of my favorite stories and one of the most unique stories I've engaged with in 2020, and that's why it's my number two. But the best story I engaged with in 2020, for me... Is the parking lot episode of Middle Edition Shorts. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> um, is what I believe is your number two. Yeah, again, back, they're very, very close. It's hard, and they're so different. Mm-hmm. But this is actually something we've talked about before this year, because I've forced anyone who would to have a conversation with me. 
and that's Naughty Dog's The Last of Us Part Two. So, Ryan, why don't we tell us? Why don't you tell us a little bit about Last of Us Part Two, and then maybe why you liked it? Do I explain the plot? <laughs> you can in broad terms. <laughs> the main char- character. So, according to the Wikipedia page, the main <laughs> character Ellie sets out for revenge after suffering a tragedy. <laughs> And Abby, a soldier who becomes involved in a conflict with the cult, which is also kind of a spoiler. Yeah, maybe we should just spoil it. Okay. So, spoilers for The Last of Us Part 2. This is my number one piece of media from 2020, Ryan's number two. Um, We can't talk about the brilliance of this game without diving into spoilers. So, Or spoilers into the first game, for that matter. Or first game, too, yeah. Don't listen to this if you haven't played both of those games. Now give us a spoiler description of the plot. After Joel um, saves, saves in quotation marks, um, Ellie from this group that would design a vaccine as a cure for the zombie apocalypse that they're living through by killing all of them brutally. Yeah. The daughter of one of the doctors that Joel killed comes and kills Joel and she sets out on revenge to kill that person Mm -hmm. and then later in the game you start playing as that person and introduces a villain and then halfway through flips the switch and makes you play 12 15 hours as the villain of this story and by the end you realize oh at least i did i realized i was playing as the villain the first half in this game Mm -hmm. and and in the first game (laughs) And in the first game, yeah, I I definitely understood that. I did not like Joel at the end of the first game, but you understood Joel, and that's what they were going for. Mm-hmm. And I've never had a piece of media, a storytelling element. There's just nothing to compare playing as a character, being a character in a game, and then the next game playing as the character that murders the character in that first one. It is mind-boggling and so beautiful and profound and really the only way to get across the message that is in so many of these revenge flicks of kind of anti-violence like the cycle of violence that perpetuates with revenge and it's just next level for me when people play a video game you are the main character yeah and it's not that the main character is their own person with their own decisions and their own personality and their own issues and their own um backstory the character is you Mm -hmm. and so joel for a lot of people is them when they're playing last of us they are joel and the game in the first hour or two kills you with a crowbar yeah a golf club (laughs) a golf club i was i thought it was a golf club i couldn't remember it is brutal um it is hard to watch and I think that a lot of people were quick to write this game off on the grounds of on something that the game very intentionally did. And, and that's intentionally the, wanted you to feel. And that's the part that makes me sad is that I, I want to think that if creators will have a story that are that is important and that they want to tell and that they have so much faith in that they're willing to take advantage of the audience's emotions. <laughs> yeah. That the audience will say, well, I have to see this through. I have to know what they have to say. And I guess I'm sure there are so many people who enjoyed this game. It won Game of the Year at the Game Awards. So it's like 
this game had an audience that really loved it. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a lot of people who can't, who haven't been able to separate themselves from Joel or themselves from Ellie or themselves from Abby and know that these are characters that are going to do the things they're going to do, whether you press X or not. Yeah, you, as Ellie, you are going to beat Nora the death. Mm-hmm. whether you like it or not you are pressing that button you know it forces you like uh, kill bill is almost a bad example because i don't think that movie is anti-violence but watching the bride murder a bunch of people is one thing but being the bride murdering people is another mm-hmm. and like every single death not just the one i just mentioned in this game is like forcing you to reckon with that where it's like you shoot a shotgun at someone and their head blows off and you hear the other enemies in in the group you're facing like scream their name or you have this ravenous dog after you and you shoot it and it like whimpers out its final breaths and it's like and you then, have and then later you see the dog as abby yeah and you're like i killed that dog yeah that dog is dead in two days because of me and i've never had something get that across so effectively and i talked about it i gushed about this game 100 percent in the hour and 20 minute long episode we already did on it but but there's also like it was funny i heard people saying like i just wish i didn't need to i wish the game didn't make me beat nora to death and it's like well then you don't understand (laughs) what the game is trying to tell you i wish that too but that's just not the story they're telling yeah and i knew the game wasn't giving me an option so i pressed x Immediately. immediately i didn't think twice about it <laughs> i waited a long time no I... I knew i knew what they were doing well because i think bioshock infinite is weirdly similar in that the game gives you choices they don't matter they don't they don't matter it's an illusion mm-hmm. and i think that it's important for video game like no video game has done the thing that last of us has done for me which is tell me this is going to be hell for you but we're gonna make you do it yeah and like video games are one of the few mediums where you can fall asleep during the movie you can put it on in the background you put music on in the background and leave you can go to a show and then like kind of just daydream you know you for video games you have to be an active participant you have to be paying attention and you have to push the plot along and if you don't do that then you won't know what happens yeah and because of that it is the only narrative is the only medium where a narrative like this can be effectively told. And it can be told as a movie, but it will not have the same impact because you are not Joel. You're watching Joel in your living room. Yeah. And I think you talk about a lot of like, if I'm going to play a video game, I want a video game to take advantage of the medium that it's in. Mm-hmm. I want like this book to take advantage that it's a book and not a movie like it can jump around in time it can have people of all different ages it can be Mm -hmm. mostly inside one someone's thoughts like take advantage of the medium you're in and nothing has done that as well recently as the last of us part two has like it only works as a video game Mm -hmm. and it works so fucking well (laughs) and i hope hbo makes something good but it won't feel i will not be the one that kills nora i will not be the one that kills joel and joel will not and if joel blow if joel kills everyone in that hospital then i will not be the one killing those people in that hospital and that is the effect a game like last of us has it's bleak and it's dour and it's brutal but 
you have to do it. You have to play through it. You have to see what the ending is. You know, you have to know where it goes. And I think it ends. I hope for the sake of Ellie, it ends on a hopeful note. But um, I kind of hope they don't make another. I hope so, too. I don't think they will. I think if they do, they'd make it in the world or maybe follow Abby. But I think Ellie's story is concluded. I think Ellie's story is concluded. I mean, I wouldn't be adverse to the idea, but like, you know, I don't I don't see reason. I think that their arcs are complete. Yeah, they they probably want to do new IP because Uncharted and Last of Us are now over and those were their flagship things. So, yeah, I think they're going to release a Last of Us factions like a multiplayer a That'd full multiplayer game on ps5 mm-hmm. i'd be really excited to see what they do with that because they said it was it was going to be in last of us 2 and then it just got too big and they were like this could be a game in and of itself mm-hmm. and so I'm, I'm excited to see if they end up going through with that mm-hmm. but yeah so if you want to hear much more detailed thoughts definitely go back and listen to our last of us podcast we had a conversation with nick and it was so much fun um and we really dived into kind of the themes of the story the gameplay uh some of the symbology but yeah last of us part two my favorite thing of 2020 ryan's second favorite behind mm-hmm. middle ditch and schwartz on netflix we're running a little long ryan so i know you have honorable mentions can you just like list them list out. them basically yeah. and say like what medium they are say if they're an album a movie so palm springs it's a a movie with um fuck lonely island guys andy samberg <laughs> andy samberg and I wish I should have had the Wikipedia page up. This is how I do you have to hear this. <laughs> um, Palm Springs movie, Fiona Apple, Fetch the Bolt Cutters album, also not named, but nominated for album of the year. Gorillas, Song Machine season one, Strange Times, also not nominated for album of the year. <laughs> Fleet Foxes, Shore, uh, also not nominated uh, album. Uh, Borat, Borat subsequent movie film. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, it's a film. And uh, Charlie XCX, how I'm feeling now. And uh, which is an album and clipping. It's horror delight, which maybe would have ended up on this list. Maybe if I had more time to, if I combed through it a bit more, because mm-hmm. I, I told, I didn't even write down my honorable mentions. But clipping, uh, there existed, or sorry, uh, visions of bodies being burned, system out, sister album two, there existed an addiction to blood, uh, brutal, awesome Halloween, mm-hmm. <laughs> scary like horror rap albums mm-hmm. maybe not scary but like certainly weird they're experimental mm-hmm. they're really experimental they're lo- uh, they're amazing i love david i only had a couple honorable mentions uh making a door less open which ryan talked about and palm springs the movie so both of those definitely in mind and then also the documentary on netflix octopus teacher i really enjoyed um and i highly recommend that so with that, Ryan, where can people find you? This, I hear you host this podcast you keep mentioning. Yeah, it's a little, little, little thing. A little, 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 something. Little, little something. It's a uh, me and my co-host Lucas Cotta and Evan Donnelly. We recommend albums to each other more or less every week. <laughs> <laughs> and we um, review them and talk about them. And we started rating them, which uh, wasn't a thing we used to do. But I think it just sort of naturally came about. Yeah. Um. And that is in, and we also try and talk about all things music related uh, whenever we get the chance. That's tough on, I'm sure we'll have year, uh, year lists and mm-hmm. also Grammy. I'm so excited to do a Grammy talk because I hate the Grammys so much. <laughs> but um, you can also find my band Beach Tower. We have a Beach Tower EP out on Spotify and anywhere else you listen to music. Um, yeah, I think that's it. Awesome. 
as for me, I'm mostly just trying to find a job these days. So if you want to hire me, hit me up. Um, but jokes aside, I am really proud of some of the episodes we recorded this past Halloween on this podcast. Mm-hmm. So go back and listen to The Last of Us. And maybe while you're there, listen to our Batman pod. That um, one was incredible. That, that was, was so, so fun, fun to record. Um, I also talked about all every single Simpsons Treehouse of Horrors. Which was the, a real slog, I imagine. It was fun, and then it was a slog, and then I was like, oh, I'm sad it's over. So it was a whole okay. emotional roller coaster that I tracked for you in the podcast. So with that, I'm Clayton Terry. And I'm Ryan Terry. And this has been the Terry Talks Podcast. This place in Queens, they make amazing meatballs. <laughs> Daddy. <laughs> I hope people aren't going to know that's from Middle Ditch and Shorts. No, but I didn't have anything to quip on.